Sorry, assholes, your quiet day at the office is about to get severely fucked up. Guys, welcome back to the After Action Review. You know me. I'm Nick Guy, the world's most okayest Green Beret. And as per usual, we're having non-okay people on the podcast. Today we have Stu Steinberg, a OG hitter. And kind of continuing our trend of, of hearing Vietnam veteran stories, kind of rectifying the wrongs of how we treated an entire generation of warfighters. Uh, we thought that this was going to be a great opportunity to uh, hear, hear Vietnam vet stories. Uh, so today we have Stu. He, he's a, he's a uh, friend of Sergeant Major Vining, uh, who you guys know from a previous episode. Um, and he kind of continues this, this, uh, this great uh, little project we're working on. So Stu, Thanks so much for coming on. It means a lot. My pleasure. So I just want to kick it off. Let's start from the beginning. You were in the Army from 66 to 70? 71. 71. 71. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And I just start off from the beginning. How how did you end up in the United States Army? (laughs) Well, I I was at college in New Mexico. And... um, I flunked out. Um, I flunked out because um, I was in a fraternity, and we were literally animal house. <laughs> um, and uh, um, I discovered Mexico, um, so we were we were several of us were going back and forth to Mexico, and uh, uh, and I flunked out. So, and that was in like uh, May or June of uh, 66. So I went home uh, to Virginia and uh, right outside of DC. And um, a couple of weeks after I got home, uh, I got a letter from my draft board. And um, at this time, they were drafting people into the Marines. And I knew I did not want to be in the Marines. And uh, <laughs> um, so uh, my, uh, my, my best friend back then and I uh, went into D.C. one night. And the drinking age at that time in D.C. was 18. So, you know, we had our draft cards and, you know, we had ID and shit. And, I mean, we got wrecked. And I tell you the truth, I don't remember anything from the time we went into D.C. to this bar called the Crazy Horse and waking up the next morning, passed out in my car in the middle of the Army-Navy Country Club on a, on a fairway in their golf course. And 
I could see where I had driven through the fence. And uh, so we're kind of trying to get our shit together. And way up the far away, man, we see this golf cart coming. So we decide, well, we need to get out of here. So we did. And we ended up in downtown Alexandria where they had a Waffle House. And I love the Waffle House because they made the greatest waffles and these fantastic, and they still do, uh, crispy, really crispy string potatoes. And uh, so we're sitting there eating our breakfast and I happened to look out the window across the street and here were all the recruiters. And uh, the Marines, the Army, uh, I think the Navy, the Air Force, I think they were all there. And uh, for some reason, we decided we would enlist in the Marines because we figured, you know, well, if we enlist, you know, we get to pick an MOS and whatnot. So we went over there and they were closed. They were out doing a high school presentation, something, I don't know. So we went next door to the Army and uh, we enlisted. And um, I, I let this recruiter, uh, well, both of us, talk us into enlisting to be Knight Hercules missile crewman. And this was one of these deals where this recruiter basically just lied to us about what this job was going to entail. And basically what it ended up being was, you know, pushing the missiles out of the barns, cleaning them with acetone and with no, uh, face masks or anything inhaling all these fumes and uh, uh, and right when I got close to being in for a year I decided man I, I got to get the hell out of here so I went into Homestead Air Force Base which is where the career counselor was and told him um, I want to I got to do something else so he looked at me for a minute and he was looking at my test scores and everything and he says um, well, what would you think about re-enlisting for explosive ordnance disposal? And I said, well, what the hell is that? And he said, what's well, the bomb squad? And I said, why the hell would I want to do that? <laughs> and, he, and, he said, and he said, well, for one reason, uh, they're going to pay you an extra $55 a month for hazardous duty pay. Now, at the time, I was a PFC, and I was making $90.50 a month. And after taxes and Social Security and all that other shit, I think I was down to about 50 bucks. So the $55 for hazardous duty pay, which was tax exempt, uh, was a big seller. That and the fact that he, he showed me the EOD badge and I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Uh, so I, I had, and I had to re-enlist for another year. Um, you, had to, you had to have at least four years if you were going to EOD. So I did. I re-enlisted. I got a $1,000 bonus, uh, went home on leave, and then I ended up at uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia, which is where the first phase of EOD school was, chemical and biological weapons. And then eventually to the regular EOD school, which at that time was at the Naval Ordnance Station in Indian Head, Maryland. Everything's at Eglin Air Force Base now. Um, and I made it through school um, and it, it, it was probably at that point, I think, you know, one of the greatest accomplishments in my life because 
I was a terrible high school student. I mean, I barely graduated. I had a fucking, I don't know, a D plus average or something like that. And uh, yeah, so when they pinned that badge on me uh, at graduation, it was, it was pretty cool. Man. Well, I feel the same way. I can't believe it. You know, the same thing with the Q course. Like, good God, how did I make it? So yeah. I, know exa- I know exactly. I know exactly how you felt. Okay, yeah. so you get you got the crab on your chest. Um, what what year is that? It uh, early uh, January, first week of January, sixty-seven. Okay, sixty-seven. So, Ildi, school is done. Crab on your chest. How did you find yourself in Vietnam? Well, when I left school, uh, and my buddy Tom Brown and I, um, we had gone through school together. Um, we got orders for this place called Dugway Proving Grounds, which was out in the desert of Utah, um, right off the Bonneville Salt Flats. And it was where we designed and tested chemical and biological warfare weapons. And uh, uh, so a lot of what we did had to do with um, new, mostly chemical weapons uh, that were being developed uh, for use in Vietnam. Um, One of the big ones was the XM-40 white phosphorus landmine, um, which was a really bad weapon. I mean, it was, you stepped on it, <clears throat> a propellant charge blew it up into the air when it exploded at about eight feet off the ground, and it just fucking killed everything in its path. Um, and I actually ran into it, ran into them during my first month in Vietnam. Um, so anyway, in uh, March of uh, 1968, um, an F-4 that was carrying a new type of uh, nerve gas dispenser weapon malfunctioned over a sheep ranch and uh, killed everything. Everything that walked, that crawled, that flew, um, all the sheep were dead, the, uh, uh, the herders' horses were dead, their, their herd dogs were dead. And this was on a Thursday. And for some reason, that was these herders day off they were all i can't remember if they were armenians or albanians but they weren't there when this happened they were in the town of tuila uh, at a bar um, so anyway we ended up going in having to clean this up um, it was it, it was horrible it was just horrible um, and eventually, <clears throat> uh, these uh, engineers came in with these roam plows and they dug this huge pit. Everything was scraped into the pit. We piled on thousands and thousands of tires, a um, couple of thousand gallons of jet fuel, tied it all together with C4 and debt caps and debt cord, set it off. And uh, after it, it pretty much burned out, then it was covered. And uh, they put a big fence around it. And as far as I know, this area is still uh, contaminated and people are not allowed in there. So 
after we finished this cleanup uh, that night, me, Tom Brown, Danny Lewitz, uh Bruce Leibarger, we all went down to the EM club and got fucking hammered. And the next morning, me, Tom Brown, Bruce Leibarger, Lewitz, Danny had already come down on orders. But the three of us went to personnel volunteered for Vietnam. I Man. figured, I figured, you know, obviously, mistakenly, and very stupidly, that, you know, the nerve gas, you couldn't see it, you couldn't hear it, you were just dead. So I just kind of figured that, well, dealing with the Viet Cong and the NVA has got to be better. And, uh, of course, that turned out to be wrong. Uh, and, uh, and I ended up in Vietnam on September 8th, uh, 1968. Man. All right. So, all right. So, I, again, I, I, this is kind of the overarching theme of, of talking to all these Vietnam vets. It, it was a clearly different time. Um, in terms of this, you know, I mean, Jesus, nerve gas. I mean, I know everybody signs their treaties. Everybody knows that there are still stockpiles and, you know, whatever, but it never really sees the light of day. That's, that's awful. Um, well, for many years, they, they covered up the Dugway incident. Really? Yeah. They said it, it, it wasn't because of nerve gas. It was uh, because of insecticide that was sprayed and the wind blew it in. It was just all a total fucking lie. Wow. That sounds like and, an awful, awful cover up. And there was a great, uh, an investigative journalist at the Washington Post back then named Jack Anderson. And every year on the anniversary, he always wrote a column about how the government was covering this up and lying about it. And they eventually uh, admitted it and released a whole bunch of documents and shit either in the late 80s or the early 90s. Um, so. Man. All right. That's. Well, again, that's and I think, terrible. you know, one, one of the other reasons I volunteered for Vietnam is because EOD was basically a job that um, was better suited for combat. And, uh, and that had a lot of thought to do with why I volunteered for Vietnam and why I volunteered and I extended my tour. For another six months. So I was actually there a little over 18 months. Okay. So, all right. So this, this, this whole incident, got to get away. Don't blame you. That's terrible. You end up in Vietnam. Where, where do you find yourself? Well, <clears throat> um, Tom Brown and I were together. We landed at Benoit. And then we were trucked over to Long Bend. And everyone was standing in this line. And uh, uh, the uh, sergeant, who um, was basically having people count off or whatever, before he started, he said, uh, where's Steinberg and Brown? And we raised our hands and he said, you two guys go stand over there. Your control unit is sending someone to pick you up. And, uh, and that's what happened. And then I ended up on a Chinook. Uh, Tom was on a C-130 going to Cameron Bay. And I was on a Chinook with a bunch of guys from the 173rd Airborne Brigade who I ended up uh, operating with a lot uh, during my first uh, 10 months. Um, 
And uh, so I flew by Chinook from right outside of Saigon to Quinyan. And at that time, Quinyan was uh, a major uh, port city on uh, the South China Sea. And uh, so I landed there and uh, made a phone call and someone came and picked me up and took me back to the unit, which was the EOD section of the 184th Ordnance Battalion. Now that 184th is now an EOD battalion. Um, it's no longer an ammunition battalion. Uh, so that's where I ended up. So you were, you were assigned to 184th, but you were attached to the 173rd. No. Uh, okay. We had, we had two, two man on site teams. Okay. We had one team that was at a place called LZ English outside of the village of Bongsong, uh, which was also on the South China Sea. And English was the home of the 2nd Battalion of the 503rd Infantry uh, of the 173rd. And our second two-man on-site team was down south in a place called Tuiwa, <clears throat> where we were supporting the 3rd and 4th Battalions of the 503rd, as well as uh, MACV advisors, Special Forces guys, whatever. Um, and, um, and the two-man team in LZ English, um, we were out most of the time on operations uh, with the with the 173rd, uh, mostly in a place called the Anlo Valley, uh, which was a really, really bad place. So, so within this within this you know infantry unit, hey, how how exactly were you guys being utilized as as EOD techs? Well, typically, know? typically, what would happen is. There'd be a, a company out on patrol, and uh, uh, they would run into IEDs. Um, we weren't calling them that then. They were, you know, booby traps, mines. And then they would, we would get a radio call from the Tactical Operations Center. They would send a chopper to pick us up and fly us into wherever the ground unit was. And, uh, and we would take care of whatever there was to take care of. Um, the, uh, the VC at that time were using a lot of homemade Claymore mines. Um, they were big too. They were like this a conical kind of a thing. And <clears throat> they would plant them off a trail and then there'd be a tripwire. So typically what would happen is, you know, we'd go out and we'd be out on point looking for tripwires and we usually found them. Um, Sometimes we got called out when they would discover a cache, um, typically in a cave. So we would go in and clear the cave of booby traps, and they were typically usually booby trapped. And then <clears throat> we had to check, you know, all of the ordnance that was found, RPGs, fours and seven or threes and sevens, um, uh, eighty-two millimeter mortars. Uh, 120 millimeter mortars, 122 rockets. Um, so we would clear this area, clear these caves as best as we could. Uh, the problem was that uh, we 
I'm thinking of one incident in particular. We discovered that they had booby-trapped these crates of RPG-7s. And there was no way uh, to disarm them. You couldn't, you couldn't get under, you know, these piles of crates. So what we did was is we uh, sent back to the rear for maybe 40, 40-pound uh, cratering charges. Um, they were like this long and this big around, and they were full of ammonium nitrate. So we strung them out inside this cave, tied them together with debt cord, uh, put about maybe 10 minutes of time fuse, pulled the fuse lighters, hauled ass, got on the chopper, took off, and then we hovered just off the side of this mountain. And when the, when the blast went off, it literally blew the top off this fucking mountain. I mean, we changed. Jesus. We, ch we changed the environment. Um, and, uh, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty, a pretty profound experience. Uh, so just, I mean, well, I mean, RPGs, RPG sevens, I, anybody listening that, that spent some time in Iraq, Afghanistan knows, knows an RPG seven and these cratering charges though. I mean, was it, was that just, was that a tool that like combat engineers were using to, to clear Land or, or something like just 40 pounds of ammonium nitrate seems like it's an overkill system. <laughs> well, I think the engineers did use them. Uh, uh, we used them, like I said, uh, to clear caves. Um, and uh, uh, they, were, they were quite something when they went off, even the single one, um, which sometimes we used in the middle of a minefield. Um, uh, I remember one case where some villagers um, had stepped on uh, some bouncing Bettys that the fucking French had left. And uh, the French, the motherfuckers, didn't mark their minefields, didn't leave any maps or anything. So we got called in and basically got down on our hands and knees with our K-bars, started poking holes in the ground. And after we found about a half a dozen of them, you know, I turned to my teammate and said, fuck this, man. We're not doing this anymore. And um, I had brought uh, a couple of cratering charges with us on the chopper. So we uh, basically crawled out in the middle of this minefield, set up the cratering charges, put some time fuse on them, hauled ass. And they went off, and, and there must have been... I'm sorry, keep talking. There must have been dozens of uh of these bounding mines so jesus i i apologize sorry about that i thought okay. i got the battery removed um so god well again i mean that's just you you hear about that and i mean that's kind of, that's kind of a thing of the past like guys you know on their hands and knees probing the yeah, ground it's it's actually kind of funny um uh, in uh 2004, one of the teams I was on during my uh, final four months, uh, the 287th Ordnance Detachment, um, I had tracked down all the guys on the team. And we met at Eglin uh, for the EOD Memorial Services. 
And um, um, shit, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, pro, uh, probing, probing. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, so after the memorial service, there was a big dinner and dance um, uh, at at one of the big EOD buildings there, and <clears throat> we were sitting at a table with a couple of recent graduates, and. Uh, they were asking us what it was like. And I said, well, it wasn't like anything like what you guys have. You know, <laughs> we didn't have robots and we didn't have bomb suits and we didn't have bomb carriers. Uh, it was two guys in the Jeep and your weapons and your EOD ship. Um, and uh, they were, <laughs> yeah, they were pretty, uh, they were pretty amazed uh, at that. And, uh, I mean, it's hard not to be. I. You said that, you know, if you were called out to do a patrol, you guys were on point looking for booby traps and tripwires. Yep. Like, so what is the implication there? If you're looking for freaking tripwires, is your eyes are on the ground. So yep. you are, you're leading a patrol. You're not even looking around. You're just... I mean, you're just looking nope. at the ground. Yeah, we're relying on the infantry to protect us, and they did. I, I I don't doubt it, but I'm just saying, like, the idea of, like, being a point man on patrol and your eyes are on the ground is just so counterintuitive. And that, yeah. takes, some, that takes massive, massive balls just to be like, you know what, I'm going to take point on this patrol, and by the way, I'm going to do it with blinders. So the only thing I'm seeing is is – four or five feet in front of me on, on the ground. Like, that's, that's insanity. <laughs> well, that's the way it was. <laughs> Good God. I mean. But you never, you know, the, the truth is, you never really thought about it. I don't think um, there was ever a time, even after I was wounded, um, that I actually thought that doing my job would kill me. Of course, it turns out it almost did. Um, but um, uh, I just, uh, just didn't think about it. I, I mean, if you had stopped and thought about, you know, getting hurt or possibly getting killed, I mean, you couldn't have done the job. I mean, it was why they were paying us that extra $55 a month. Uh, Good God. Yeah. Um, so. But, I mean, well, for 55 bucks a month, I mean, I, I know it's, it's it's more than it sounds but well now they get they get i don't know 350 or maybe 400 a month yeah they they get they get pro pay yeah yeah and yeah. and you know i don't know what i don't know what it is about eod guys cuz i i've i've worked with i've worked with army eod i've worked with navy eod and the navy eod guys are super cool and they're super cool and they got great hair and they got cool kit but honestly the, the Army EOD guys, I don't know if it's just because they they get the mission more so than, like, the other branches. They understand the, the ramifications a little bit better. But we we had two EOD guys, Army EOD guys, attached to the ODA my last deployment, and they were phenomenal. You had a senior and a junior. Uh, the senior had been around for a hot minute. Excuse me something like 16 years in the army guys seen it all e7 type real soldier soldier and the young guy was just he was young he's super eager super eager to learn 
just happy to be there. Um, and, and that made for a really good, made for a really good kind of team dynamic, having those guys on there. So, I mean, I mean, if you're out there and you're saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to support this infantry, you know, I'm going to support this ODA. And by the way, I'm just going to take away all my situational awareness. I'm going to take away all the things that are going to keep me alive in combat. And I'm only going to focus on the things that can kill these dudes. That takes a very special type of person. I don't care who you are. I don't care how you cut it. That's, that's the truth. I can't well, imagine leading a patrol and saying, you know what? I'm just going to totally ignore 95% of my surroundings. I'm only going to focus on where my feet are. Yeah. At, at Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Um, we, uh, um, yeah, I keep losing my train of thought. Um, that's that's fine. I mean, well, I mean, there's there's only two. I mean, there's really only one way to look at at your story in Vietnam. It was that of total badassery. I mean, I say that I say that being able to, with all the benefit of removing myself from the horrors of Vietnam, and kind of distilling your experiences down to a single word. But that's what it was. Well, we I, mean, I we did we did consider ourselves badasses, man. I mean, I'd hope so. You'd have to have you would have to have a chip on your shoulder walking around like that, going, you know what? These guys think they're smarter than us, but watch this. Yeah. Yep. So, eighteen months in Vietnam. That that's how long you spent. You extended. Yeah. Despite being wounded. Yep. You know, I would have ex I would have extended a second time, except uh, by that time I had about three years in grade as an E five and. Uh, they said I had to go back to the States for nuclear weapons. Okay, so that was the only way your, your career was progressing. Yeah. Interesting. Man, so, all right, so you save, you save, you know, you save a bunch of infantry dudes. I know what I was going to say. Oh, go ahead, please. Have at it. I, I always considered us to be existential doctors. Why our is job, that? Because our job was to save lives. And that's what we did. Every time we disarmed something or blew something up, um, we saved lives, either American lives or Vietnamese lives. Um, um, a lot of times we were called out, uh, especially uh, during my extension when I was at 287th, we were on almost daily operations with either a 101st unit or a 3rd Marine Amphibious Force unit. In fact, where we lived at the Fubai Combat Base, we actually lived with third force recon and these were some crazy motherfuckers. I don't mind telling you. Um, and they apparently still are. Um, and, uh, but we got called out a lot, uh, in Northern I Corps, which was basically, you know, butted up against, uh, the border with North Vietnam. <clears throat> they ran a lot of airstrikes in that area, particularly in a place called the Aishaw Valley, which is where Quezon was. And uh, anytime they ran a B-52 strike or even a, you know, uh, a couple of F-4s or a couple of 105s uh, dropping bombs, there were going to be duds. So a lot of times what would happen is in the after action assessments, you know, they would send an alert team, a long range recon team, or maybe an A-team um, or, or Navy SEALs, whoever, uh, to do an assessment of the bomb strike. And 
typically when this happened, they would find duds. There were always going to be duds. Um, and uh, they could be anywhere from a 250 pounder to a 2000 pounder. Um, it was mostly uh, the Navy that dropped the big ones, the 1000 pounders and the 2000 pounders. Um, so we would get called in uh, to destroy these weapons because if we didn't, the VC and the NVA would come in, they would cut them up, steam out the RDX or the TNT, um, and turn them into mines. Um, so it was a really important fucking thing that we did, uh, destroying these, this dropped ordinance. And uh, uh, a lot of times, um, what would happen is we'd set the charges on these things and then we'd haul ass. And I never put more than five or six minutes of time fuse on them because you didn't want the VC or the NVA coming in and you know pulling out your blasting caps. Um, so you'd haul ass, get as far away as you could, which in this area, most of these areas in Northern Icor were really dense forests. Uh, it wasn't like the jungles down in the south. And you'd get, get behind a tree and wait for the damn thing to go off. And in one case, and I talk about this in my book, the thing goes off and I could hear the base plate from this 2,000 pounder, which probably the base plate probably weighed two, 300 pounds. And it was what the rear uh, uh, fuse would be screwed into the base plate and then another fuse screwed into the nose. So we're down behind these uh, trees that have been knocked over by this B-52 strike and, uh, or this air strike, whatever it was. And one of these guys, after the explosion, jumps up and, and before I could say, get the fuck down, here comes this base plate roaring down out of the atmosphere. It lands like five feet in front of this guy. And if he didn't shit his pants, he should have. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that, that was, uh, and a lot of times what happened is when we went out on these uh, bomb calls, these dropped ordinance calls, we would end up um, not being able to get extracted either because of the weather or a lot of enemy activity or whatnot. So a lot of times we ended up hunkered down, uh, you know, with the LERP team or the A team or whoever we were with, MACB advisors. Um, and we would actually then be in the infantry, you know? Oh yeah. We, we took our took our turns on guard duty and uh well you didn't sleep much anyway um and uh i remember on one one call we were on after we did our thing and the the guy that was with me was an e5 who had been in the uh, on the in the control team down in saigon and uh, uh louis caruso was his name um, he's deceased now unfortunately really great guy and so one day he told the control team OIC was lieutenant colonel that uh, he wanted to see what it was like, you know, to be on, with a ground team. So they sent him to us. And one of one of the chapters in my book is called something like, "And ah, we did everything we could to kill Louis Caruso." <laughs> so, so we blow this bomb, and we can't get extracted. So this lerp team snipers up in this tree, 
and, and Louie's kind of standing at the base, and I was over talking to their RTO or something. So the sniper looks down at Louie and says, hey, come up here, man. So Louie climbs up in the tree, and he hands him his rifle. He says, look through the scope at that ridge over there, and here's this fucking platoon of about 20 NVA looking for us. Because when we set the bomb off, of course, it was like saying, oh, we're here. Yeah, look, look, look where we yeah. are. So fortunately, um, they didn't find us, and we were able to get extracted that morning. Uh, but, yeah. And, and, did, and, and, yeah, Caruso, he was really glad to go back to Saigon. <laughs> did Louie ever go out again after that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he wanted he, more. Oh, he, he was Atta with boy, us. Louie. Atta yeah, boy. He, he was with us for a week, and uh, he went out on some pretty heavy shit. Man. That's crazy. You guys, I for, real quick. I, I don't. I don't want to interrupt you guys. I I really forgot to mention Stu's book. This is what hell looks like. Life as a bomb disposal specialist during the Vietnam War. I I one hundred percent meant to to mention it uh, at the beginning. But as you guys know, I I, I, I'm I'm the world's most okayest Green Beret. I'm not a good Green Beret. I'm not even a good podcast host. I'm very mediocre. So guys, check out his book. It's on Vietnam. My copy's on the way. Um, it, it, I, I'm looking forward to to great stories, more great stories like this. Um, but it's gotten, it, it's gotten some really good reviews. It, it has, and and Ozzy, Star Star Major Vining, he could not say enough good things about about you about your book. Um, well, Mike's a great guy. He really is. That that was a that was that was a great interview. Um, and it's funny because he's kind of he's become like this internet legend. Yeah. Just due to his, you know, his appearance, you know, versus what he's done. And yeah. I, I learned a lot about the whole EOD side from Mike. So, I mean, yeah. I, I really appreciate that. So, all right. So that, that was my plug for the book. All yeah. right. So, all right. Vietnam ended. You, you go back to school, you become an attorney, but that I, I don't, we don't care about, you know, they're, they're, attorneys are a dime a dozen. Yeah. Uh, what I do want to know about is your return to Afghanistan. Like, listen, here you go. Old school Vietnam hitter. He's been around the block. How do you end up back in Afghanistan in the 2000s? Well, uh, like I was telling you before we got on the air, uh, one of my best friends who is a retired major, uh, 23 years as an Army Ranger in Special Forces, um, was running. Uh, uh, a narcotics interdiction program in Afghanistan. Uh, it was a team of Rangers and a team of SAS guys. And uh, they were uh, basically running interdiction operations along the Iranian border. And um, they, uh, to be blunt, <clears throat> unlike what we were doing when I was there, they did not take prisoners. When they caught these smugglers and seized the dope, they fucking killed him. And uh, uh, I think that eventually had something to do with why the why ISAF decided they were no longer going to be involved in interdiction shit. Um, so uh, it was March of 2009, and um, I knew Tony was over there. And, um, and I saw my phone rang, my cell phone. And I looked at it. It was like 19 numbers. And I said... What the fuck is this? So I get on the I get on the phone and it's Tony, and he says, "Dude, I need you to come over here 
and run the administrative end of this program. I, he, he cannot write worth a shit. <laughs> and he told me that. And he said, I need someone who can write because there were a lot of reports uh, that were due. And then there was a lot of involvement with ISAF, um, going to briefings, um, telling them what we were doing uh, in our program, that kind of stuff. So um, I talked over with my wife and my son, and they said, okay. And, you know, in early November 2009, I got on a, uh, uh, what's the airline? Uh, Emirati. I, I got on an Emirati plane, flew into Dubai, uh, and then eventually uh, flew from there into Kabul. And uh, eventually, what happened was our HQ for our program was at the headquarters uh, for the UN Office of Drugs and Crime which was located inside a really heavily barricaded and armored uh, uh, location. And um, so for the first, I don't know, week or so, I was reading, reading lots and lots of stuff about this program and our involvement uh, with the Iranians and the Pakistanis on cross-border interdiction shit. And then one day, the guy who ran all of the counter-narcotics programs, Mark something or another, can't remember his last name. He was a South African, uh, he'd been a commando, whatever they call him in South Africa. So he calls me into his office and says, I want you to go to this ISAF briefing and uh, explain to them what we're doing. So I go and uh, <laughs> it was a trip, man. Uh, there was a one-star army general that was running the meeting and I was sitting next to a two-star general from Romania, and <clears throat> I was the only person in the room that was wearing blue jeans, a t-shirt, and tattoos. <laughs> and uh, so at one point, uh, they were going around the room, and, 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 and each person, would basically ask a question or say something or whatever. And so here we were, all of these ISAF people, talking about uh, the Afghans, and particularly the Afghan border police, but there were no Afghans in the room, not one. So it gets to this uh, first sergeant. Um, I can't remember who he was with. And he said, looks at this general and says, well, why are we talking about uh, the Afghans when there are no Afghans in this room? And the general looks at him and says, well, we're not ready for that yet. Um, so <clears throat> it got around to me and I said, well, look, I'm going to tell you guys what we're doing up in Herat. And, uh, but I got to tell you, I got to agree with the first sergeant here. I don't understand. Uh, why none, of, why none of our country, the Afghan border police guys, why they aren't in here. Um, and the guy that was sitting next to me, this Romanian general, kind of kicked me under the table and then whispers in my ear, he says, talk to me when this is over. Um, so I, eventually the thing was over and, uh, uh, and I did 
talk to this general. It turned out that he was running the school um, that was training uh, uh, border police command staff. And uh, he actually invited me uh, to come to the school. Uh, I never got there because what ended up happening by my second or third week, uh, Tony decided he wanted me uh, on site uh, up at our location in Herat. So uh, I got on a, you know, a plane, I think a C-130 maybe, and flew into Herat and then uh, ended up along with uh, my, my partner, uh, 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 Victor Schmitz, who was ex-KGB, ex-FSB, and ex-Spechnacht. So we just always believed that he was probably a spook for the Russians. Uh, trying to keep track of what we were doing. and uh, But Victor was a great guy, is a great guy. He may still be over there, too. Um, I think he's been there. He's been there, like, for about 10 or 12 years. He's, he's from the Ukraine. And uh, so what we did was we um, lived um, in a, uh, a fortified position that was near the Herat Airport. And, and what we would do every day is we would drive out to the border police compound, which was about five clicks northwest of Herat. And what we did was is um, we taught courses to their NCOs and their command staff. And I taught courses in IEDs, ordinance identification, uh, searches of people, places, and things, and tactical convoy movement. And then what we did was is, and, and I, it, shortly after I went to Herat, Tony had to come back to the States because of some medical issues. So it was just me and Victor. And what we would do is, is you know, we would get together um, with our border police guys and, and they would get intel about smuggling operations. So we would develop that intel, and then we would plan an interdiction op. And, uh, and then we went out with them, uh, you know, because, and that was one of the other reasons Tony wanted me to come over there, because uh, the UN had hired these two guys. One was a Canadian retired military guy, and the other was a Belgian retired military guy. They would not go on ops. So the... Border police had no respect for these guys at all. I mean, how do you know if they're doing things the way you taught them if you're not with them? Um, so, fair point. Yeah. So, you know, and, and one of the other ways that we developed intel, there was a nomadic tribe in this part of the northwest part of Afghanistan called the Kuchi, K U C H I. And we would go out to their cantonment areas where they had these big tents set up and had their camels and whatever. And, and we would end up talking with them. Now I had an interpreter and a driver, um, really great guy who Tony and I eventually got out of Afghanistan. He now lives in California where he's managing a 7-Eleven. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I like to hear. Welcome to America. And, um, <laughs> um, so, um, 
a lot of times, well, what would end up happening is, you know, we would find out from the coochie when smugglers were going to be coming through. And one of the reasons that they gave us this intel was we would ask them, the different tribes that we went to, if you could have anything you wanted, what would you want most? And I swear to you, I'm not making this up. You know what they said they wanted most? Better cell phone reception. <laughs> yeah. Now, in, in one place, in one place, they wanted a well. So what we did was, um, I can't remember if it was the Italians or the Spaniards came in and put up a cell tower. Really? And, yeah. And then in one of the other ones, the, I think it was the Italians came in and drilled a new well. That fucking thing went down like 2,000 feet before they hit water. Um, and so, so the Coochie would give us intel. They would tell us smugglers are going to be coming through such and such an area. And so what we would do is, is we would go in and we would set up basically an ambush. And, uh, and typically, you know, I would have uh, uh, six gun trucks, uh, uh, Toyota uh, trucks that were up armored. Um, each one had a RPD uh, uh, a 51 machine gun and, uh, and, uh, and four guys with AK-47s or RPGs. And what would happen is, is the smugglers would come in, would, would stop them, and they would give up. Because uh, usually it was these young kids that the smugglers were paying two or three hundred bucks to to run a truckload of heroin or opium over the border into Iran. Um, so um, we did we did a lot of those, and we never had a problem um, until the last month <clears throat> that I was there. My uh, <clears throat> they tried to bomb my driver and I at least two times that we know of. Unfortunately, uh, um, uh, observant civilians who saw them planting these IEDs in the road that we, one of the roads that we took, and they had figured out our routes of travel. We had three different ways of going, but they apparently knew all of them. Um, the first time, we actually rolled over the device because they weren't after us. They were after the chief of police, who <clears throat> was huge anti-smuggler, anti-Taliban fucking guy. They hated this guy. They tried to kill him a bunch of times. And then the second time, <clears throat> they planted a mine in the roadway. It was a paved roadway. And some guy that was looking out his window saw them doing it. And when they split, he actually went down the street to an Afghan security force uh, checkpoint and told them. And so they called in the, uh, the Spaniards had an EOD team in Herat, and they came in and disarmed this thing. So uh, anyway, my last two weeks, I think it was, and I was looking at extending for uh, staying, uh, signing another 90-day uh, contract. Um, we had set up <clears throat> this uh, roadblock, and it was in like this ravine kind of a thing that had two ridges, uh, one on each side. So I had three gun trucks on top of each ridge. And then <clears throat> we had an up-armored uh, Toyota Land Cruiser. And uh, I had it cross the road. And 
my interpreter driver and I were behind the Land Cruiser and you know, here come these guys in this uh, Ford Ranger. So when they get about 100 yards in front of us, I flick on the uh, Klieg lights and my interpreter's got a bullhorn and he's basically telling them to, you know, if you've got weapons, throw them down, get out of your rig and get down on your hands and knees. Well, for whatever reason, these guys decided to open up on us. And so now we're in the middle of this fucking pitched battle and um, what was really amazing was watching bullets bounce off the Kevlar on our rig um, and eventually none of these guys were killed but they were all wounded um, so the Spaniards uh, uh, I called for a dust off the Spaniards came in um, you know picked up all the wounded guys and uh, we seized I think Four or five hundred kilos of heroin. Oh my God! Well, in the overall scheme of things, it was probably one one thousandth of one percent <laughs> of all of the heroin. But I always figured that every time we seize these drugs, we save the life of somebody from ODing. Seriously. Um, so that's how I looked at it. Now, <clears throat> after this event, I kept waiting. For them to call me from HR in Kabul about my new contract, and uh, so when I got down to three days, and on the day that your visa expired, you had to be out of the country. So um, um, I got back to Kabul, and I was skyping with my wife, and I told her what had happened, and she and my son asked me not to take another contract and to come home. So I did. In fact, actually, that day, they called me from HR and said, well, your new contract's ready. And, but I left. Um, hello. No, sorry about that. Hey, no problem. Issue. Yeah. No, that's incredible, man. I mean, honestly. So 40 years later, and you're <laughs> still in the shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I was 62 years old, and I was definitely one of the oldest guys over there. Um, and it just, you know, when Tony asked me, and to come over, it just seemed like something I had to do. Um, uh, I uh, didn't think much about, you know, I could get killed doing this, whatever, you know, but um, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Well, good God. I mean, a after, you know, after service in Vietnam, going 40 years, having a career, having a life, having a family, going back, it's commendable. I mean, honestly, you know, they, they, always, they always say it's, it, it, you know, it's a bit cliche to say, hey, you can take the guy out of the fight, but you can't take the fight out of the guy. But that's really the case, especially with a guy like you. Yeah. Man. Well, Stu, I can't thank you enough 
this is an absolute honor and a privilege to hear your story because oh, it, it, is, it is an important story. And like I said, before we started recording, I mean, we have this entire generation of Americans and we don't really know, we don't know what they did overseas yeah. in Vietnam. Just because well, I'm, I'm really fortunate in that most of the guys that I served with in Vietnam are still alive. And, uh, we take care of each other even now. Yeah. That's uh, you're, you're involved. You're involved in multiple, uh, like veteran organizations, charities, things like that. What are you involved with? Yeah. I'm, well, I'm on the board of directors of the national explosive ordinance disposal association. I am the veterans benefits coordinator. I do VA claims for former and current EOD people. I do medical boards. I do physical evaluation boards. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, and I do, I do a lot of VA work, uh, for current and former EOD guys. Um, so, uh, I really, uh, I, I'm really good at, at it too. And being, and being a lawyer helps, uh, because it, it allows me to, you know, I think understand, um, uh, things about the VA that maybe some other service officers don't. Yeah. So yeah well you guys i mean i can't thank you enough Stu. you guys do yourself a favor get on amazon and go pick up this is what hell looks like life as a bomb disposal specialist during the vietnam war by the one and only Stuart allen steinberg Sue, can't thank you enough this was an again absolute honor and a privilege Thanks. welcome home welcome home and thank you for your service Heavy metal. Hell yeah. Take it easy, brother. All right, bro. Talk to you.